Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We finished the first half of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And I mentioned again that this was a letter that he addressed to them but wanted them to circulate around the region. And in those first three chapters, and I remind you, most of you know this, and uh, most of you remember it, I'm sure, but Paul did not write these letters. The Bible was not written in chapter and verse form. These books were arranged and divided up that way to make it easier for us to find certain places in the Bible. It's very easy once you know what the books of the Bible are and if you can count uh, to find any particular passage of Scripture simply because of the way it's divided up. But Paul did not write, okay, now chapter 4, I'm switching directions. This was one letter. I'd like the way this is divided in this case because the first three chapters lay the groundwork. The, sec- the, the last three chapters say, now what? But uh, we've read in these first three chapters about how Christ has utterly redeemed us. Too often, Christians consider their salvation only in terms of forgiveness. And that's huge. It's important. We have to be forgiven. Uh, We have to be saved from our sin, saved from hell. But if we only think about terms of, in terms of forgiveness, we are missing an awful lot because there's clearly so much more to it than that. We have been made children of God. We've been made the body of Christ himself. And we have been given an inheritance Because we're members of God's family. The first of two great prayers in this book is that we would have wisdom and revelation concerning these things. That we would not be blind to all of the benefits of our salvation. That we would appreciate just how big our salvation is and how great God's love is for us. And how great his power is in us. And the authority that we have as a result of this power, as a result of God being who he is and loving us so much. And the prayer is not, uh, the prayer is very specific that we would know these things because that's where that authority is going to come from. We will exercise it not just because it's true. We will only exercise it if we know it. And so Paul is praying for revelation and knowledge for the Ephesians and by extension for us who read this letter. That prayer, and these are things, and we can turn these prayers. Many of you have probably read or heard this. Uh, You take these prayers that Paul is praying over the Ephesians, and you pray them over yourselves. God, that you would open my eyes, that the eyes of my understanding would be enlightened, that, that, that I would receive revelation knowledge concerning how big your love is, how big your salvation is, the greatness of the power that dwells in me because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Then he writes about the new birth and how this is not just, our Christianity is not just a decision we have made to live a certain way. It's not a decision we've made simply to receive the forgiveness of God, but that a real spiritual change has taken place. The new birth, that we are no longer, it's not just that we no longer sin, it's we are no longer sons and daughters of disobedience. We are no longer dead in our sin. We were, we all were, but God has raised us to new life, given us new life. He's the one who's done it. He's done it by his grace. We don't get it by our works, so we can't boast about it. And all this, this new creation that he's worked in us, he has done it for a 
purpose that goes beyond saving you from the fire of hell, although it certainly does that. He has saved you for good works. The world has had it backwards for years that we, with our good works, earn our salvation when the Bible clearly says, I give you salvation and I make you a new creature for good works. And this is all review. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 2. Then he spends the rest of chapter 2 reminding the Gentile Christians that, you know what? In God's eyes, there's really, there really are no Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians. You're all just Christians. That this enmity between Jew and Gentile was really a grand illustration of the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Saved and unsaved. Lost and found. All who are believers in Christ Jesus are saints of God now, members of the same body, members of his household with equal status. Then he goes on in chapter 3 to say that this, this inclusion of the Gentiles into the salvation of God is the great mystery that was hidden from men for ages. Nobody really seemed to understand it. Jesus' disciples didn't understand it, really, uh, until uh, long after the ascension. Uh, that God's plan was always to include the whole world, not just the Jews. And Paul writes that this is one of the things that underpins his whole ministry, is to reveal this mystery to the people God has called him to minister to, that it's not Gentiles coming to the Jewish faith. It's Jew and Gentile coming to faith in the same Jesus Christ. All right? Now, the second great prayer uh, that we find then is, is, is that uh, we, that the Ephesians, and again, we, would be strengthened in the inner man. That Christ would truly dwell in our hearts and that we again would understand the enormity of God's love and experience the fullness of it. So he has given us three chapters of this. This is huge and it's all yours. Know who you are in Christ. Recognize your position. You're not just saved. You have been recreated. You have the spirit of Christ in you. And you are in Christ. All things are under his feet. Therefore, all things are under your feet. God, the creator of heaven and earth, loves you. And has made you his family. Chapter 3 ends with this magnificent passage. Ephesians chapter 3 beginning in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in him, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Then in chapter 4, he starts the second half of this letter, which is the therefore. Since all this is true, since God indeed has changed us in such a big way and loves us so much what should we be doing how should we live and with all of this build up the therefore might sound a little anticlimactic at first let's uh let's skip this part for right now let's read 
Let's just read the first five verses. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. All right. Stop there for a second. Therefore, with all this power, this identity as children of God, all this authority, walk in lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And it goes on and on. There'll be a passage in here about the gifts, and then it goes on and on about this lifestyle of being kind Walking in a certain way. I've told this story before, so bear with me. I know some of you will probably remember it, but I also know there are several people who haven't heard it. Um, Many of you have heard me speak of my first occupational ministry job, which was at a place called Canaan Land Ministries down in southern Alabama. Brother Mac Gober was the head of that ministry, and it was a home for men with life-controlling problems. Forty acres in the country. Uh, uh, This was... uh, this was a small town, population 999. I guess I was number 1,000 when I moved there, Togaville, Alabama. And we were in suburban Togaville. <laughs> we were out in the country. And uh, these guys would come there, uh, and there were 20 students. We lived in this old, old lodge. It used to be an Assemblies of God camp of some kind, I think. Uh, two guys per room. And uh, they were there. When, during my time there, the big problem was crack. So about, just about every guy that came into our program was there because he was a crack addict. And about half of them at any given time, it was a year-long program. They, they had to live there. It wasn't a lockdown facility. It wasn't a clinic. It was a Bible school. We treated, the, we treated this problem spiritually. But because of the good relationship that Mac had with the members of the court and things, there were about half of those guys at any given time were there as an alternative to jail. Okay? Uh, But there was pretty strict guidelines. They had to commit to being there. They could not be committed there. In other words, for for a long period of my tenure there, I uh, I was in charge of admissions. And it was always a heartbreaking deal to have to tell somebody, some mother or wife or or a child or a relative of some kind would call and say, I've got this person in my life who has this problem. Can they come there? And I'll say, we can't even start talking about it until they call. They're the ones who have to start this process. You can't start it for them. Um, And there was an overwhelming response. We always, always had a long waiting list. Anyway, we got some pretty colorful people there. We had to take people... Uh, you know, we talk about triage. We did kind of have to do that going through these, these stacks of applications. Who are, who are the cases of most immediate need? Who are the ones who are most likely to benefit from this program? Who are the ones who are most likely to ride it out, stay the whole year? And among these guys that showed up were the Reigns brothers, two good old boys from Mississippi. And we were talking, I say good old boys, they were bad old boys. Uh, they, they, did, they, didn't, they weren't just addicts. They were dealers and all sorts of stuff. They weren't mean, okay? They were just nice as can be, but they were, they were involved in some bad stuff. And uh, I can remember having some interesting conversations. So I'll give you an example. Stan was the older one, and he had actually been a heroin addict back in the day. 
and he'd been around longer, street smart like you wouldn't believe, and I mean deep, these southern accents, man. I mean, sometimes even hard to understand. I'm not good at, at uh, doing a southern accent, but I can remember having this uh, one particular incident. We went, we took all the guys into town for a drug test. They had to have blood drawn. And uh, when, when Stan went in there, they could not, because of all his years of heroin use, they couldn't begin to find a vein they could use to draw blood. And Stan says to the nurse who's drawn blood, I know you're not supposed to do this, but you're never going to get this done. If you'll hand me that needle and turn your head, I will find the vein for you. And he did. So anyway, just giving you some background here. We are up on, uh, here's the other story that I like to tell about the Rains brothers, and this was Ron, the younger one. We were all up on the roof, uh, roofing one of these cabins on another piece of property. And we were talking about uh, a guy who had recently come to Canaan land. Because they, people came from all over the country. Most of them were from, you know, the general, you know, southern states. But people came from all over the place to come there. We had, we had two come from Canada. Uh, but uh, this guy had come from Philly, and he had arrived by train. And the guys found this very, very interesting because nobody came by train. They, came, they usually came into to, uh, Montgomery or Prattville on a bus, and then we picked them up. Usually, actually, their, their pastor or a family member drove them there. This was the only guy in Canaan land history that had taken the train. And uh, they were just kind of joking about this. Well, how did you get here? Well, my pastor drove me. How did you get to Canaan land? Uh, my parents actually brought me. My dad brought me. And Ronnie's down at the other end of the roof, and they say, Ron, yeah, how did you get to Canaan land? Crack. <laughs> Crack. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. How do you get to Canaan land? Crack. So this is the way their minds work. All that. So now you've picked, you, you know these guys. And you don't really have to know them. I just like telling those stories. <laughs> We're driving out to the work site one day. I'm driving the van. Got seven or eight guys with me. And Ronnie's sitting next to me in the van. And he says, uh, Brother Scott, how does one get to be truly spiritual? And you can see why he would ask me that question. <laughs> I was impressed with this, with this question. Because here's a man with a very rough, sinful past. This wasn't just some guy uh, who just happened to make a wrong decision and, and get caught in this, this addiction. This was a guy who was, I mean, out there. He was a player, or what passes for a player uh, in, in, in his particular neck of the woods. Very rough, very sinful past. And he's come to the point where we wanted all of our guys to come to, which is, which is this, I'm not at Canaan land just to get off drugs. I'm not at Canaan land just to stay out of prison. I really want to know God. I cannot offhand, I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm quite sure, uh, of the dozens of guys I met during my, my short stay there, uh, every single one of them got saved. No matter how hard they were when they came in, no matter how resistant they seemed, everyone who had been there, I think by the time any of them were there a month. They had surrendered their lives to Christ, at least insofar as recognizing their need for a Savior. Uh, and here's this guy, this rough guy from Mississippi. I almost said kid, but he wasn't a kid. And he's like, I, want, I don't want to just be saved. I don't want to just be clean. I want to be spiritual. How does one get to be spiritual? And before I could answer, 
he follows it up with this. I'm not talking about memorizing scripture, loving your brother, and all that stuff. I'm talking about the spiritual stuff. Now, do you know what he meant? Because I'll tell you what he meant. I knew exactly what he meant when he said that, and I'll tell you why I know. They were very, very limited. We had a television, but they couldn't just turn it on. There was like an hour a night where they could have this thing on, and it had to be on Christian programming. They could watch like a half hour of news, and then we could watch like an hour of Christian programming. Uh, We might plug it in through the day uh, to watch a particular uh, video. We had a VCR, and uh, and we would play a lot of tapes from... uh, Do I need to explain to the young people what tapes are and VCR? You can ask your parents, ask an older person. But we would watch videos of conventions, camp meetings, famous ministers who were one way or another, many of them were connected with Canaan land. And they would get to see a lot of these demonstrations, the gifts in operation, okay? And I might add that a lot of these demonstrations had to do with a lot of falling down and... and, uh, Stuff that you know that I have struggled with, not in terms of doctrine. I have seen God move in ways that are unusual. I have seen him move in ways uh, that have genuinely touched people. But I'm talking about sometimes the man God uses to minister, maybe getting a little carried away with, you know, shooting like a gun behind his back and blasting people with the Holy Spirit. And it kind of turns into, it does, it turns into a freak show and it bothers me. I'm not saying God can't even use those situations. I've just seen too much focus being put on the man and the woman. This is what that guy's talking about. How do I get to be a spiritual guy like these guys? I want to be spiritual. I don't want to, I'm not talking about this walking in love, praying, memorizing scripture. I'm talking about the spiritual stuff. Now, here's what you... And you know, it kind of reminds me. Remember Simon the sorcerer? Uh, he's, he's watching... He's watching him pray for, for people to receive the Holy Spirit. And he said, ah, I want to do that. Here, here's some money. Uh, give me this gift. Sell me this gift so that whoever I lay my hands on, they'll receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because something exciting was happening. What was it? They were speaking in tongues. He said, they're, they're praying for these people. They see the Holy Spirit. They start praying in tongues. I want it to be so that when I lay my hands on them, his motives were all wrong. And so were Ronnie's. His motives were all wrong. And here's Paul, okay? He just got done telling us about all the spiritual blessings that are ours. The power that is available, that belongs to us, the fullness of God dwelling in us. And Paul is writing to a fairly mature group of believers. These are not Corinthians. These are the Ephesians. And what does he say? Walk worthy of the calling in which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Is that spiritual? You better believe it's spiritual. Is it uh, explosive? Is it exciting? What's the word I'm looking for? Is it fun? Okay. Extraordinary. It's not the spiritual that this guy was looking for, but it's the spirituality that God is looking for in us. It's what all this strength 
And all this power should be manifested at least this way. The way we walk, the way we relate to one another. When, let, me, let me just break this down just a little bit. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I want to, I want to, there's a certain point I really feel like I have to get to today. But when it says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called, one hope, if you're calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, you know there are some people who grab that phrase, one baptism, and they say, see, those of you who teach that there is a separate experience, a second blessing, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is different from salvation, are clearly wrong because it says right there, one baptism. Have anybody heard this argument? Because we believe... I believe, I know most of you believe, that there is a baptism which is our confession of salvation, our public display of salvation, that salvation happens. And who baptizes us into Christ? The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that seals us. It's the Holy Spirit who does the work of salvation when we receive Christ, when we bow our knee before Christ. And then that water baptism, which I believe is what Paul is talking about here, I'll get to that in a second, uh, is one baptism And then we say, now you're saved. Just as Jesus' disciples were clearly already saved, they were saved when he breathed on them the breath of life before he even ascended. All right? They were already saved, but it was some days later that they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there was clearly a second blessing, a second baptism. Paul is not talking about the distinction between water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All he's saying is, it doesn't matter if you're baptized in a river, an ocean, a lake, a bathtub, a baptistry, and it doesn't matter if I baptize you, Peter baptized you, or Apollos baptized you. Baptism is baptism. That's all he's saying with this. So don't get... Don't let somebody clobber you with that verse when they're trying to talk you out of the Holy Spirit that is absolutely necessary if we're going to live the way, if we're going to do everything that God's called us to do, right? So uh, the details of how you came to Christ might differ, but it's the same Christ. We are all one body. Let me read on here in uh, beginning of verse 7. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all, heaven, above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Let me stop right there. This parenthetical insert here always bothered me because when I see that uh, when he ascended, uh, you know, what could this possibly mean but that he first descended to the lower parts of the earth? And when I read lower parts of the earth, I mean, it looks to me like he's talking about hell. And I'm thinking, well, whether Christ descended into hell or not, Paul's talking about the ascension. And to me, all that means, if he ascended, what, what, what could that possibly mean but that he first descended? I'm like, well, he ascended from earth to heaven. But I think that's what Paul means when he said he first descended. He descend, he, this, he's reminding us that Christ existed before the incarnation. He lived in heaven. God the Son, eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit, descended even to the lower parts of the earth. He didn't descend to a king's throne on the earth. He did in a spiritual sense. But he descended to a humble position on this earth. I believe that's what he's talking about. Do I believe that Jesus descended into hell? I believe that happened, but only insofar as he descended to announce the victory to those, those who were in Abraham's bosom to, sh- to shake his fist and, and take the keys of the kingdom to announce victory to, the, to those captives, I do not believe he descended into hell and suffered for three days. 
Uh, I think that's a, that that is a, I don't I don't think I think it's a pretty dangerous teaching to think, uh, and, and, and it's absolutely reading into reading something into scripture that is not there that Jesus was tortured in hell for any length of time. Okay, Jesus said, "Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit." Before he was even off the cross. All right, so his appearance in the lower in the, the lower parts of the earth, if that's what Paul's talking about, was simply to announce a victory that had already been won at the cross. So don't get hung up on that either, because that's not Paul's main point in bringing this up. He simply said, when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. And he himself, verse 11, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Thus ends perhaps the longest sentence in the Bible. Was that the passage you were showing me last week? <laughs> Could he have broken this up just a little bit, Paul? Although, again, I'm not sure what, the, uh, what punctuation exists in the Greek and how much of that's translation. But anyway, here's what I want to say before, before we wrap it up today. I'm not going to do a full teaching on these ministry gifts. I did one not too long ago, uh, I think on Wednesday nights. But I will, I will at least say this. I believe that all of these offices, all of these gifts, these ministry gifts, there are three main passages where Paul talks about spiritual gifts. One in Romans, where we ta- chapter 12, I think, where he talks about the innate gifts, the, the talents, the personality gifts, these serving gifts that he gives us. Uh, and then the spiritual gifts uh, that some people call the sign gifts, the gifts of the Spirit in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then here, the ministry gifts of Ephesians chapter 4. And I believe that in all three of those passages, all of those gifts are still in operation. Now, there are some who would say, well, clearly there aren't apostles anymore, there aren't prophets anymore. What do they base that on? Well, they base it on they don't want there to be apostles and prophets anymore. <laughs> It's a, it's a scary concept to them. And I'll explain those probably next week, a little bit of an explanation. Right now, I just want to say, here's why I'm absolutely convinced these gifts are still in operation, because of the word until. Until what? He gave us these gifts, and these gifts are people. He didn't, it's not so much that he gifted me with pastoring as he gifted you with a pastor. All right? He gifted us with teachers, with apostles, with prophets and evangelists. Right? These are gifts to the body. Tells them what they're going to do and how long they're going to do it. Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Are we there? When will we be there? I think we're going to be moving toward that until Jesus comes or until we die. All right? It's just like in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can turn there if you want. You can just let me read it. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 8. Love never fails, 
But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now there's some disagreement on when that which is perfect has come. Some believe that means when the canon is closed and we have the whole Bible. If we read on, we see that can't be what he's talking about. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, when? When that which is perfect has come, then face to face. Now, I know in part, but then, when that which is perfect has come, I shall know just as I also am known. Now, are we walking in that fullness of knowledge Can we see God face to face as clearly as he sees us? Clearly not. When is that which is perfect has come? When we are in the manifest presence of Jesus Christ. On the other side. When he comes back or we go there, that's the perfect. That's when we know fully. That's when we see clearly. Right now, there's parts of this world you know darn good and well. Parts of this Christian walk that we see as through a glass darkly. There are things we simply can't explain. And we will know those things someday. But we're not going to know it all until we're there, when that which is perfect has come. Same thing here. These gifts, as we continue to work toward that, toward this unity of the faith and measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, a perfect man, as we move toward that, these gifts, these people that God has placed in the body are there to help us get there, working to that end. And they're people. Even though they are gifts, and gifted, they are people. What does that mean? It means, among other things, that from time to time, it's going to get messy. Why? Because they are still moving toward a perfect man and the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. They are still moving toward that perfect unity. None of us are there, including the gifts, including those God has given us to move us that direction. Same way. When we, and we, I know we talked about this in the spiritual gifts. People talk about tongues and prophecy and words of knowledge. Wow. Uh, if those are still in operation, can't you see how, what a mess that would cause? I've seen the mess that has caused. I've seen the gifts get messy. Have you seen the gifts get messy? Have you seen somebody prophesy and miss it? I have. Does that mean prophecy is wrong and invalid? Absolutely not. I've seen counterfeit money but i'm not going to throw away my real money money's still useful the gifts get messy because life gets messy and people are messy god is perfect but he works through people and people are imperfect life is messy church gets messy too don't be afraid of these things don't be afraid to get messy man the word is there to clean us the water of the word We get messed up and we can get cleaned up, all right? Now, I'm not talking about falling into rank sin. I'm talking about if people miss it, if they overstep their their, uh, roles, they say something, uh, maybe they shoot their mouths off, or again, they miss it, we just walk in forgiveness and we correct one another, right? Now, as we move a little closer toward wrapping this up, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, What did I do there? There it is. 
16. This is probably, well, certainly one of my favorite verses. In Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. By what every joint supplies. This thing will never work the way it's supposed to until every part of the body is doing what it is supposed to. Now, all of us, every single one of us, is called and equipped and gifted to do specific things. Now, perhaps you have not identified what your gift is. What is it that God has equipped me to do for this church? But while we're still figuring that out, or maybe while we are developing that gift, all of us are also equipped and gifted to do some of the same things. These are all from the grace of God, but they are things that we are all supposed to do and all of us can do. What are some of the things? Again, there are some things that only you can supply for this body to work. But meanwhile, even though, even if you know what your role is, we are all still supposed to supply the following for this body to work. We just finished up a series not too long ago on one of them, and that's worship. Your worship is something that you supply that makes this body work. When this church is supposed to be in worship, you as an individual are supposed to be in worship. The fullness of worship is... is is most beautifully expressed by the whole body. And we can look at our own bodies as an example of that. It's, it's nice to sing, but how much, more, how, how much more full is our expression when we involve our whole bodies? Even if this is as dancey as you get, if you move your body rather than just stand there, involve your whole body. Well, let's involve the whole body in worship. What else? What else do you supply? You pray. And this is something I have I've been delighted to uh, hear the reports of how much prayer has been going up, for instance, for Matt and Ashley, for Ashley in particular. We pray. These are the things that we do. I, as pastor, cannot begin to bear the prayer burden for this church. We must pray for one another and pray for ourselves. Give. How many of you know that every single one of you is to give? Honor God now, the give, I'd, I'd be careful. Uh, I happen to believe, I, I still believe in tithing. Again, I want to be careful about how legalistic I get about it. But if you're going to embrace the tithe, the tithe isn't really a gift, it's a payment. It's something that God lays claim to. He owns it. You pay your tithes, but you can give over and above. But if you're not doing either one, let's just start with the word give. All right? Give of your resources. Is that Oh, why do you have to bring money into this spiritual discussion? Are you kidding? It's all spiritual. It's all God's. You can't withhold that. You can't withhold one part of your life and then expect God to bless that part of your life. All right? Give and it'll be given unto you. Don't worry about it. What else can we do? What else do we supply? What, one of the things we're doing right now, we, when we assemble, the body works better when the body is together right bodies aren't super effective when the arm is one place and the leg is another and the head is someplace else right and when we walk in love 
just about the time any church, any Christian organization gets rolling, uh, when things start to really build momentum, that is when you can just count on somebody getting mad at somebody else. else. And it'll be an undercurrent of not perhaps hatred, but resentment and lack of patience. Every little thing, once you get mad at somebody for one thing, it doesn't take much for them to tick you off with the, with the smallest thing. There they go again. All right? That's not walking in love. It's not walking in forgiveness. It's not the way I want you to think about me. So I'm going to work really hard at not thinking that and, and speaking that way about you. But have you ever ticked me off? Let me count the ways. No, I'm not. I'm going to cast those things into the sea of forgetfulness. I want you to do the same for me. And I want you to do the same thing for one another. Because we will waste a lot of time if we dwell on those things. Let's be determined to see the best, to assume the best about one another's motives. All right? Let's just don't automatically project our uh, inadequacies and our sin on somebody else. And until we embrace those things, worship, pray, give, assemble, walk in love. And this, by the way, according to Paul, is maturity. This is spirituality. Unless we embrace those things, we are never going to be truly ready to advance into anything else. There's, there's, there's more I want to, to get to. I'm just not going to get to it today. I need to cut it off. And that's, praise God, I would rather have what we had in terms of that healing service plus what we've had in this message than to have the rest of my message when we've got another week or two to get to it. That's, we will see, and, if, and I would encourage you to go home today and, and sometime between now and next Sunday, read the rest of the book of Ephesians. Certainly read the rest of chapter 4. I think we'll get beyond, we'll go further than that next week. But do at least read the, the rest of chapter 4 when it's talking about the way we live, the way we walk, the way we speak, the way we treat one another. And to see this as true spirituality. Does it mean that these other things that we were talking about aren't spiritual? Of course they are. They simply don't require spiritual maturity. Remember, that was one of the big lessons from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is writing about these spiritual gifts, and he's not telling them to stop it. He's encouraging them to do it, but to do it right. But these people who had no lack of spiritual gifts, the stuff, I, you know, the, the woo-woo stuff, uh, they, they, they were doing it, and it was of God, but it didn't require them to be mature. The, the Corinthian church was an immature church. I'm just saying, I'm not saying this is good and that is bad, just that this is not that. Paul is writing about Christian maturity here, and he's talking about the love walk. Not about tongues, not about people falling down, or any of that stuff. Again, not that one is good and one is bad, just one is not the other. Let's concentrate on growing up spiritually. And part of that spirituality is doing your part. What every joint supplies. That's what makes the body strong. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer here where we are committing to be the body, to be the part of the body that God called us to be, to supply what God has called us to supply. And then I'm going to pray, uh, as I usually do, for the unsaved. If there are people in here, if you've never made that commitment, if you've never given your life to Christ, invited it, that, that fullness of Christ, the fullness of God indwelling us that Paul writes about, that's what happens. That's part of your inheritance 
when you accept the lordship of Jesus Christ, when you receive his salvation. But that's a personal decision. And if you've never made that decision, I'm inviting you to make that decision today. To simply acknowledge the claim that he has on you because of his finished work on the cross. To recognize that you can't save yourself with your works. You have to receive his salvation as a gift. Then he'll give you the works to do. And if you want to respond to that, you want to make that decision today, as soon as I'm done praying and they start singing, come up here and let me pray with you. Meanwhile, I'll pray. You just agree. You don't have to repeat after me. Say, uh, but, but say this in your heart. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gifts. Thank you for the spiritual gifts. Thank you for the motivational gifts. Thank you for the ministry gifts. Thank you for knitting us together as a body. Thank you for this church body. Thank you for making us strong for the good plans you have for Living Word Family Church. And Father, I commit to doing my part. Help us all, Lord, to find our specific role. To recognize our specific gifts and what it is we uniquely bring to the body. Meanwhile, remind us daily that you have empowered us. You already have empowered us to walk in love, to give, to pray, to worship, to assemble. And Father, may we be found faithfully doing all those things. Father, thank you for your presence in this place today. Thank you for the way your power has manifested. Thank you for uh, the strong healing anointing that has been here and for the healing you've already, uh, for the healing you purchased 2,000 years ago, but that you've already begun to work and fully manifested in others today. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Most of all, Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord God, that if there's anybody in here, anybody in the sound of my voice who has not experienced that salvation, who has never received the entrance of light and life into their heart, has never been recreated, transformed into a son of the living God, that you would convict them of their need for salvation today, that you would cause a a desire, an eagerness, an urgency to rise up in them to receive that gift today that you would grant them the humility to recognize that need, grant them the wisdom to respond to that need, the boldness to come and receive the meeting of that need today. Now, in Jesus' name, all the believers said, Amen. God bless you as you come. Let's go ahead and sing. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.